0: Welcome to the Health Leader Forge, where today's health leaders help to forge the leaders of tomorrow. I'm your host, Mark Bonica, of the University of New Hampshire's Department of Health Management and Policy. Our website is healthleaderforge.org, where you can find information about subscribing to the podcast, links and information related to the episode, as well as our complete archives. Health Leader Forge is a production of the University of New Hampshire's College of Health and Human Services. This week's guest is Tim Soucy, the director of the Manchester Health Department. Tim started in the department as a sanitarian and worked his way up to be the director in 2006. In this podcast, Tim talks about his 25 years of service to his home city, how the department has evolved and the challenges and opportunities public health workers face every day trying to make Manchester a safer and healthier city. Welcome to the Forge, Tim. Uh, thank you. So uh, you're originally from Manchester. Grew up here? Yeah, born and raised. Yeah. Okay. So it's uh, it's nice to come back and actually yeah. serve the community that you yeah. you grew up in. Yeah. Okay. So tell me a little bit about Manchester. What, what was it? How has it changed uh, over the years since you were a
1: kid? You know, it's it's really it's changed dramatically. I think for the good and for the bad. Okay. Um, Manchester is interesting in that it's a it's a large enough city to um, have some real problems, but still small enough to get your arms around you know the city has has certainly changed huh. you know we see um, a lot more poverty right now about f- over 53 54% of the kids in Manchester schools are eligible for free and reduced meals so wow. the you know the rates of poverty and childhood poverty you know we Manchester was a sort of a very blue collar working community and and it's 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 um we see much more poverty now than, than I think we ever have and that's certainly concerning. is that a change
0: in industry that's
1: here or
0: well is, you know
1: we out? went through the the city really went through a, a tough period in the 60s 70s early 80s uh, with the mills you know the Manchester's had the largest industrial mill complex in the world and it's okay. in its heyday and the um, you know I think when the mills declined a lot of people lost their jobs you know we had this sort of banking crisis in the 80s where a lot of the banks were taken over in the city uh, but now we're seeing much more high-tech, you know, redevelopment of the Mill Yard. Uh, so there are some really great things going on in in the city.
0: Is, um, is the high-tech thing relatively recent, or is it, like, with hum- it, it, in what span?
1: Yeah, really over the past, you know, 10 to 15 years, okay. it's really taken off. Um, the, the Mill Yard has been redeveloped. There's been a lot of work to redevelop Elm Street, you know, which is the main thoroughfare in the city. Um, the Verizon Center, the Fisher Cat Stadium—you know—all these things were done recently. You know, recently within the past ten, fifteen years, and they've been really great things for the community. Okay,
0: great. Uh, but but at the same time, you're seeing high levels of poverty in the school system. So, yep. is it that families that were here, that were employed in blue-collar kind of work, hasn't haven't made the transition to a, and I, the you know, kind it's, of opportunities? We, we still have a pretty so? transient
1: population. Okay. So it's hard to say there's one cause. You know, yeah. for the for the rate, I think it's kind of a a number of factors that have, have you know, all played in uh, through the years, and it's one of those one of those trends we've just got to reverse, um, and it's not gonna happen overnight. Right, and how big is Manchester? You know, the city proper, uh, it's about 110,000 okay. population. Uh, area-wise, it's about 33 square miles. <laughs> um it, it's pretty it's pretty neat to have this urban center in a in a rural state you know it's it, it, that, that part of it is is cool is that we we have this urban center where there's activities and restaurants and right. all these other great things going on but when you take manchester versus the rest of new hampshire it's a very different face you okay know, we we talk about you know new hampshire being one of the healthiest states in the nation and uh, all of these really great things you know v- low birth weight baby numbers are very low and uh, but when you look at manchester we don't represent we don't look like the rest of the state okay Our, we tend to over represent you know a lot of the a lot of the negative factors
0: oh. But it's a, it's a, you and know is the, that because it's a it's the it is the largest city yeah, in the state? There's no
1: doubt it's because it's an urban okay. urban center. A lot of people come to the city for services. Okay. Which uh, you know getting back to that other question about, you know, why are our our homeless numbers so high or poverty so high? You know, Manchester is a draw for people coming to access services. We've got a great system of of nonprofits, of churches, of, you know, uh, people who want to help others and and I think that helps draw folks to the city.
0: Okay. And um what I, uh, I've heard that, that Manchester, I've read that Manchester is a refugee center? It's a refugee resettlement w- what center. What does that mean? So uh,
1: every year the United States takes in around 80,000 refugees from refugee camps um, and Manchester has been designated as a, as a refugee resettlement area by the uh, resettlement agencies. So there's, there's two prime resettlement agencies in New Hampshire, the International Institute of New Hampshire and Lutheran Social Services. So uh, Manchester has always received sort of the uh, the bulk of refugees, um, and when I say you know we're probably talking in the average of two to three hundred per year, uh, and they've come through the years from many many different um, countries. Um, you know, really started many years, probably twenty years ago, with with the Vietnamese population, um, and then we had a large influx of Bosnians. Um, you know, uh, Interesting. all okay. around the you know That's the wars. Quite diverse. Yeah. Um, then we had a very large influx of Africans uh, and now our, our greatest uh, group of refugees is uh, the Bhutanese. It certainly adds uh, a lot of diversity. We have over 70 languages spoken in the school system wow. in Manchester uh, poses its challenges. There's no two ways about it and, and you know one of the there's always been this debate in the city about refugee resettlement and, and are we are we doing the right thing by bringing people over and over without, making sure that those who have already resettled have become acclimated. And, okay. and that's sort of the, the debate that rages on. I don't think anyone you know, has any issue with the, the refugees of the value they bring to the community. It's, and our mayor has said through the times, just let us catch our breath and make sure that everyone who's here has learned English, has gotten a job, has um, had the opportunity to succeed. And, and we've seen a number of success stories, but sometimes when folks arrive, it's do I learn English or do I get a job? Um, right, and sure. put in take care of my family. so uh, it, it's 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 pretty unique. you know we uh, we run refugee clinics here. We're actually one of the first stops that a, a new arrival makes when they get to the city. Okay. Uh, we'll make sure that they at least get started on their immunizations because quite often folks don't come in with great medical histories and records. Uh, we'll do TB testing on on folks. Our goal is to, get them what they need right away, uh, make sure that the public health is protected, because we do have folks who come in with latent TB infections, we need to make sure that they're put on appropriate medication, um, and then get them linked up with a medical home, okay. a permanent medical home. So we're not their medical home, we're their first stop, and then you know most folks end up at the Community Health Center, or the Westside Neighborhood Health Center for their long-term care.
0: All right. Well, we'll come back to the refugees, I think, in a, in a little bit, the refugee care in a little bit. But I want to ask you a, a, a couple more questions sure. about Manchester real quick. So let me say, let's imagine you're now the ambassador for the city. Uh, why do people come to Manchester? What's great about it? What are you particularly, you know, as a son of the city, what yeah. are you particularly proud of when you tell people, I'm from Manchester? Yeah, you know, I,
1: I, I, it's kind of a funny debate because I, I grew up in the city. I, I still live in the city. Um, Manchester's got a lot going for it. It really does. It's got a thriving downtown. It's got great arts, culture, um, restaurants. Uh, as I said, we've really t- kind of turned the corner with some great high-tech jobs. Um, you have companies like Dyne and Decca and SilverTech that are you know, big employers, um, really recruiting, trying to get that younger generation to move into the city. Um, You know, my kids went through the public school system. I think we have a great public school system here. It takes a lot of knocks sometimes, um, but I I think we have a great school system. The fun thing about Manchester is you're an hour away from Boston, you're an hour away from skiing, you're an hour away
0: from the ocean. So it's, um, it's a pretty cool place to be. Great. And you went to UVM. I did. And you studied biology. When did you get interested in public health? Well, I kind of fell into it by accident, okay. to be quite honest. Okay. Um,
1: when I graduated from UVM, my, my first job was doing contraceptive research and development oh, okay. down in Worcester, Mass, okay. which um, wasn't really what I had in mind, you know, um, <laughs> as a long-term career. Okay. Interesting. But it, it was pretty interesting. I, uh-huh. I, I, we actually did the, the, uh, the first clinical trials on, on uh, Animals with what's known now as Plan B, the morning-after pill. Okay. So, okay. I guess that's my claim to fame. I'm oh, not sure. You were, so, you were part and, of that. Okay. Part of that. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, and actually, a, a position had opened up with the health department as an entry-level health inspector. Okay. And once again, they, you know, they were looking for someone with a science background. Okay. Um, which, you know, I had my bachelor's in biology and applied and was hired. And that was in 1990. And I. 25 S- years later, I'm still here.
0: So how did you, okay, so how did you, I mean, you, you found out about this position. Why why did you apply? Why, why didn't, I mean, well, you, know, you were already you already had a job. Yeah. You were working on you yeah. know, interesting research, at Well,
1: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't realize I was allergic to rats oh, okay. <laughs> until, okay. until okay. after I started. But, you know, it was an opportunity to, to do, I, you know, I, I'm not a person who wants to sit in a lab, okay. you know, with the same three or four people day after day. Uh, I love being out and about you know, in the the community and and doing different things. So, it was an opportunity to sort of take that science background and and apply it in a number of different ways. Um, It was a little bit more money, it was a chance to move back to Manchester, so everything kind of fell
0: into place. I understand that, wanting to come home. So you, your first job was an environmental specialist slash sanitarian. <laughs> right. Is this a typical kind of entry level job in in your department? Yeah, it is. It's it's. Okay. Um, so what does it do? What do you, what did you do? What were yeah. Your so at back in the
1: so at the time we used to call them sanitarians, and now okay. over time I think we we've, we've made the transition to environmental specialists, a little more professional okay. sound. Okay. Right. I remember my wife gave me a hard time when we put our wedding announcement in the paper because it said sanitarian. She uh-huh. sounded like a threw garbage for. A <laughs> So yeah, we we hire quite often folks right out of school with their bachelor's degree for for this position. It's a a health inspector, so I spent a lot of time um, learning about food safety, inspecting restaurants, um, doing different complaint investigations. And that's always interesting because that's everything from checking on people's living conditions to garbage in the alleys, to answering chemical questions, to radon. Um, so we really looked at some of the, how the environment interacted with public health and we designed a lot of programs around there. So it was really um, a lot of inspections, a lot of field work. Um, became a septic system designer because we still have a little bit of uh, the city that's still on septic systems. Okay. So I still maintain my septic system designing license, even though the technology has changed and I haven't quite kept up with everything through the years. So it's a lot, a lot of field work, and, and um, back in, the, in that time, you know, the bulk of it was around food safety, and, and we still have a very robust food
0: protection program. Okay. How many uh, environmental specialists do you have today on, on staff? Yeah, we've got laptop. we've yeah. got five people in the field. Okay. So. Okay. Um, so that's not a huge force. No, it's not for a fairly large city. You it's had, not. You know, One hundred and ten thousand people. got yeah. Five inspectors. And they're busy. They're uh, busy oh, I folks. Bet. Yeah. I bet. Yeah. I bet. yeah. Okay. How did you go about? So you had a degree in biology. Mm-hmm. You clearly, you, you you probably never I'm guessing never done a food <laughs> inspection before, amongst other things. That's all, all other things. How did you learn your your trade?
1: Yeah, how, you know a, a couple different it? ways. Yeah, um, a lot of on the job training. Really, okay. you 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 know we always say we want people with a sound science background and oh. we want people with good interpersonal skills. Okay. I can teach you how to do a restaurant inspection, right? But we've got to have the right attitude because you deal with a, a a very diverse group of people from restaurant owners business owners you know you're in people's homes you're doing these things so we need people to understand the science of what they do and and then how do you apply it in a in a um, in a manner uh, around food protection that you're able to say to someone you know this is the violation because here's the science not because the code says so or because right. i told you to do this right. but really uh, being able to explain why we want people to do certain things
0: okay and that's important because
1: you know, I, we want people to understand what they're doing. You know, right. we don't want someone to just say, this is dirty, clean this, this food's out of temperature, whatever, you know, we want people to say, you know, you can't have food at this temperature because bacteria okay. is going to grow and you only have so much time and, and, you know, put it in in ways that people understand why it's important.
0: Okay, all right. So after four years on the job um, as as a inspector, you moved up to be the chief of the Division of Environmental Health. Can you talk a little bit about the mission of the Environmental Health uh, Division? Sure. Um, yeah, so at that
1: point I was promoted to oversee the other inspectors, which okay. um, was, it was an interesting time because I had worked, you know, these are the folks who had trained me that I was now uh, supervising, which is always a challenge when it comes to personalities. But it was, um, it was, it was interesting, you know, I, at the time I was taking some additional home study courses from CDC, trying to sort of broaden my horizons as well. And, you know, I get to do a little bit more administrative work. A little less field work but still some field work I still actually to this day keep my hand in some of the field work uh, which is it's kind, of kind of interesting of... I tend to take bulk of the weekend and night call and um, instead of calling someone else on the middle of the night I'll just handle whatever comes up okay
0: eh. so you were working as an inspector um, you got selected to move up to mm-hmm. be the supervisor how did you learn the, 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 the leadership elements
1: yeah. Was, that's, it, was that also
0: kind of an OJT thing? It was kind of OJT. You
1: know, at the time, there were a couple other supervisors, mm-hmm. uh, nursing supervisors that I was, you know, would learn from them. And, mm-hmm. you know, I tend to um, try and, I guess at least in my own mind, pick the best from everyone and develop yeah. my own style. Mm-hmm. Uh, but seeing what I think will, has worked for others, you know, yeah. will or will not work for me. And um, yeah, I, I, I try and keep things pretty simple. You mm-hmm. know, I try and yeah. Treat people you know, fairly, evenly, consistently. Uh, I have a very open door policy. It's yeah. not uncommon for anyone to to pop in. It's always been that way. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, a lot of you know a lot of the leadership skills I think were um, really based on observing others and what I thought would work well for uh, how I was going to run not only my division
0: but interact with the public. Great, great. Has this mission of this division changed uh, since you were you were in charge? The overall mission hasn't changed.
1: I think some of the tactics and strategies have changed. Um, You know, technology changes. There's always new. I mean, when I started, things like West Nile Virus and Triple E, we didn't deal with. It wasn't an issue. Now we have a very robust summer program where we're trapping mosquitoes. We're doing a lot of public relations with the community around, you know, personal protective measures. Um, 25 years ago, we just
0: didn't do it. So the scope of this department is not just food inspections, no. and it's also including um, contagious disease or, or the spread of. Correct. Okay. Yeah, that's
1: okay. really our kind of our bread and butter. You know, when you look okay. at public health, is um, we have another division of, of community health nursing, which handles all of the communicable disease investigations, um, and some of them are preventable, some of them are not. You know, some of them you the report comes in, you you drop what you're doing and make sure that that gets addressed right away. Right. Uh, it's not uncommon to have a number of active TB patients in the city at any given time. So our staff works 365 days a year doing directly observed therapy on someone to make sure that they're taking their meds. You know we don't want to develop drug resistant TB. We want to get people healthy and back to a, a normal life as, as quickly as possible.
0: So in, the, in a, in a in a day in the life of a, <laughs> of a, of a health inspector or, or, or the um, chief of the, of the environmental division, what could that person expect to be out looking at? Um, I mean, it, um, it really it varies. Food inspections, food inspections, trapping mosquitoes. Trapping mosquitoes. What else? Uh, swimming
1: pool inspections. Okay. So we license and inspect swimming pools in the city. Um, Is that a public pool or a or or, or a like somebody's house? Anything not attached to a single family home. So condo associations, public pools, hotel pools. Um, So we'll be gearing up for that in the springtime. You know, everyone gets a sort of pre-opening inspection. Um, Different complaint investigations. We we've actually believe it or not been doing more and more um, investigations around hoarding. 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 Okay. Talk, um, talk about that. That sounds interesting. It, it's, you know, we see quite a bit of, of, and it's for a number of different reasons. You know, sometimes you have someone who has mental health issues that ah. just refuses to. So this is someone gathering away. up a lot of stuff. Yeah. Okay. Yeah.
0: Um, sometimes and When does that become a public health issue?
1: Well, it depends. You know, it's a hard, it's a, it's a thin line because okay. there really needs to be something there that creates an imminent hazard. So, okay. um, you know, if someone just has clutter, newspapers, oh. clothing you know, we'll try and get them some assistance. Okay. You know, when we get into rotting food or sewage disposal not working properly or animal feces, you know, then it becomes much more of an of a imminent public health threat that we have some pretty substantial legal powers that we can um, enforce when we need to. But, you know, we always consider ourselves educators first and enforcers second. Um, okay. You know, we do have the legal tools when we need them. Okay. But um, you know, if someone is in that position and it's because they need help, we're there to get them help first.
0: Right. Uh, that's, that sounds very interesting. Um, so I'm looking at, I was looking at your, your CV, mm-hmm. and um, I noticed in 1998 you received your, your master's in public health from Boston University. How important is getting a graduate degree to practice in your field, particularly at, at, at the level you're now at?
1: Yeah, I think it's pretty important. You know, an MPH is such a broad degree that okay. it, it opens, not only does it open a number of different doors for, for students, but um, it's, a, it's kind of a hands-on degree. So I think it's, an, it's it's important. It was interesting because I was uh, I, I started going to BU in 95, so I was still working full-time. My wife and I had just had our first daughter, and I was traveling to, go, traveling to Boston two nights a week for three years. So it was a little, a little hectic time, uh-huh. which, which I'm so happy that you know UNH has put the MPH program in Manchester now um, because the, at the time there weren't a lot of options for people to get an MPH, and, and I think it prohibited a lot of people. I think we're seeing a lot more people... In the field of public health and healthcare, going back to get an MPH because it's much more accessible. So, you know, for growth opportunity, for job opportunity, um, for personal development. You know, I didn't want to do environmental health every day for the rest of my life. It was fascinating, but yeah. um, it was time to do something different and learn a new skill set.
0: Okay. Also, looking at your CV, it's interesting to note that up through about 2000, your continuing, continuing education uh, had titles like food microbiolat. Excuse me, food microbiological control. Safety Measurement, Bloodborne Pathogens, and Introductions to Indoor Air Quality. And then post 9-11, some of the titles uh, of your continuing education include Emergency Response to Domestic Biological Incidents, Biodefense Mobilization, Healthcare Leadership, and Administrative Decision-Making in Response to Weapons of Mass Destruction Incidents. Uh, So how did public health change (laughs) after 9-11? Yeah, Uh,
1: it's a very different world now, you know. um, it's an interesting it's an interesting debate because after 9/11 there was an influx of money into the public health system. Okay. I think we realized after 9/11 and after the anthrax attacks in October of 2001 how deplorable our public health system was across the country. Really? Yeah. Okay. So the federal government you know went from a couple hundred million dollars to you know, billions of dollars investing in in public health infrastructure around the country. And we were the recipient of a lot of that funding. Um, You know, our first emergency preparedness grants just for the city were over a million dollars a year. Uh, We're down to about 400,000 now, but it was a tremendous influx of money. And Different health departments across the country handled it very differently. Um, Some people put all their eggs in this emergency preparedness basket and there was a lot of criticism about we're really forgetting what public health is all about and, and just fo- solely focusing on uh, emergency preparedness. You know, we took a lot of that funding and um, we shored up our, our staff. We brought a medical director on, which we had not had for many, many years. A medical uh, director meaning a physician? A physician on okay. staff. We've always contracted um, oh, okay. with, with a physician uh, for things like standing orders. But to have, we, we realized that we really needed to make a much stronger link with the medical community. And docs tend to talk to docs better than uh, public health directors. So uh, we did bring a a physician on and kept that position filled for a number of years. One of the other interesting things we did with uh, post 9-11 funding is we created a a training institute here at the health department. You know, We realized New Hampshire doesn't have a very robust local public health system. There's the city of Manchester, the city of Nashua that have health departments. And there's about 15 what we call self-inspecting towns, meaning they do food protection work and environmental health work. And then the rest of the state every town has a local health officer Uh but that's it and there's no the only requirement to be a local health officer in new hampshire is that you're a resident of the state of new hampshire
0: oh so So there's qualifications are are
1: varied varied yes is that a nice way of saying that's a very nice way of saying (laughs) it so what we've what we've tried to do is put together this training institute um and it's uh, it it consists of five courses Mm -hmm. there's an intro to public health course an EPI course, a communicable disease control, an environmental health course, and an emergency preparedness course. Each each course runs around six to eight weeks. They're Thursday mornings from nine to twelve. Um, and it was an opportunity for us to begin to use the expertise that we have in house to provide real hands-on training. So our our EPI and biostats is very different than what you would take, you know, at the undergraduate or graduate level. It's very uh, s- simple, but easy to understand, much more applicable than. You know just sitting there doing biostats. You're not doing
0: research. Correct. You're not preparing people to do research. Exactly
1: so so we you know we use some of that post 9-11 money to create this training institute. We've had hundreds a couple hundred people complete all of the courses so that was one of our ways of helping. Who comes to
0: these classes?
1: It varies you know we have folks uh, in-house from from other health departments. We have a lot of folks who come from hospitals. We have folks that come from DHHS. Uh, We have local health officers so it really varies, and I think that's what makes for an interesting class, is we've got people from a variety of backgrounds and experiences that are able
0: to able to share and, and learn. Wow, very good. Um, so in conjunction with 9-11, um, your title changed. You became the Public Health <laughs> Preparedness Administrator in 2002 and it looks like that was an expansion of the, uh, of the chief of the Environmental Health Division.
1: Yeah, so what we what happened was we, we really we began to put a lot of work into, after 9-11, into the development of emergency preparedness plans in the community. Okay. Um, we worked very, very closely with our first responders, our fire, our police departments, our EMS uh, provider, our, our two local hospitals, to make sure that we, we put in place plans that made sense Mm-hmm. you know, okay. to respond to, to an emergency, whether, we always say, you know, whether man-made or naturally occurring, because we've seen, you know, we've seen both. So a lot of time was spent developing these plans, drilling these plans, executing these plans. Uh, so it was an expansion of my, my current job. I got a longer title out of it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it was uh, it, it was good because we, you know, we, we did have all of these resources coming in and we needed
0: to better coordinate what we were doing. Okay. Um, was this the first time you had worked with the Manchester Emergency Operations Center, the EOC? Yeah, typically the EOC. Did an EOC exist before it, that?
1: It did. It was um, managed very differently than it okay. is now okay. um, for certain. You know, We still had dealt with flooding incidents, snowstorms, power outages, sure. the natural disasters you know, prior to 9-11. And that's still the bulk of why we sit in the EOC. Um, but the, I think we've seen much stronger relationships built amongst the city departments that in response to emergencies now you know it used to be I think everyone had their own little piece of the pie and they didn't necessarily want to share that and now you see a lot of um, you know group decision making Um, we often joke that you know sometimes the community police officers are more like public health guys and Uh, uh, you know so we do we we've done a lot of cross training with fire and police and and through the years um, and I think those relationships have really Built, been stronger, and put the city in a better position. Should we ever need to um, have to execute any of these
0: plans? Okay. What did you learn in in the process? So, so it was, there was a lot going on yeah. back in that in that time frame. A lot of a lot of you know a lot of fear. Mm-hmm. A lot of resources were suddenly becoming available. Mm-hmm. What did you learn in terms of kind of what worked, what didn't work? Um, yeah, I think you know the. Um, I, I think what worked were. Um, the,
1: the relationship building I think everyone realized that we were in a new time and that they couldn't they couldn't keep their little piece of the pie anymore that it was really about if we were going if we were going to work better it had to be collaborative mm-hmm. uh, and I think that was really uh, probably the greatest thing that came out of that. It was a really you know tumultuous time. you know I remember mm-hmm. after well two things that come to mind you know the mayor at the time said to you know the fire chief, the police chief and the public health director at the time, make sure the city's prepared. Well, what did that mean? We didn't right. know what that meant. So, you know. Did he know what it meant? You no know one knew what yeah, it meant, right, but it, right. it's, it was a good sound bite. You know, yeah, it's what yeah. we had to do. And, um, you know, I, I think because of some of the relationships we've built over time, particularly with the hospitals, okay. we've been able to engage them at a new level, um, okay. not only around emergency preparedness, but around community health and what are they doing in the community and how do we better utilize them in the community. And it's, it's not only about writing a check, you know, when we needs money it's about how do we better partner to improve the health of the community so i think i think the relationships that were built uh, have put the city in a much better place great do you worry about complacency i mean we've had some time now yeah um, um yeah i guess you always worry about complacency i think on the you know on the infectious disease side yeah. there's always something new popping up right. you know um we, we keep this response kit of, of personal protective equipment, and, and it started with smallpox. If you remember during the first Gulf War, there was quite a, a concern that smallpox was going to be used as a uh, as a biological weapon. Um, so we had the smallpox response kit. Well then that threat passed, and then monkeypox came up. So there's a new sticker on it that says monkeypox response kit. And then SARS came up, so there was a new sticker on it that said SARS response kit. And then H1N1 came, so there was a new sticker that said H1N1. And Ebola came as a new sticker. So, mm-hmm. You know, there's always something new coming up. Um, you know, I think when you look at the, the threat of terrorism, it, it certainly has not gone away. Um, I, I think complacency happens when these things are, are left to the side. I, I think we still try to be pretty active. We have a regional public health preparedness advisory council that still meets. Okay. So, you know, I, I think everyone That is, goes beyond Manchester. It goes beyond, yeah. When we look at, at emergency preparedness, you know, we realize it doesn't respect geographical boundaries because uh, there's really no local public health infrastructure outside of the city, we try and help provide that service to our neighboring towns during emergencies. I mean, we don't do it on a routine basis, but we do plan regionally because, you know, an influenza pandemic in Gostown is the same as it is in Manchester. And so we've developed some um, some pretty good plans around things like points of dispensing, um, if we had to provide a vaccine or an antibiotic to a large number of people, how do we do it? And we've worked with the towns of Bedford and Gosstown to set up these pods.
0: So a lot of, you know, a lot of good regional work has, has occurred as well. Okay. We've been talking about public health, but I haven't actually asked you to kind of define it for us. So <laughs> could you give me an idea, what, is it, what does it mean to you? I think this is a, a term that means a lot of different things yeah. to a lot of different people. What yeah. does it mean to you as the director? That's that's a very good question because we've we've spent a lot of time talking about environmental health
1: and, right. and emergency preparedness, which is a very small piece of of what public health is. You know, in my mind, public health is about quality of life, and I say this quite often. You know, it's about how do we how do we create a, a, a city that helps improve the health of the people who live here, and we do that in a number of different ways. But I think you know, strategically, when I think of what does public health mean to me, it, it's about quality of life. It's about it's about having a, a city where people can exercise and have access to healthy food, where they can be protected from disease threats, where they can be protected from environmental threats. So it's pretty broad. It's pretty tough to get your arms around what okay. public health means, because I think it means something to, different to everyone. Okay. Uh, I think a lot of it comes from your personal perspective. If you would have asked me this in 25 years ago, it would have been all about environmental health. Okay, you know, sure. But, um, but now I, I really look at it much more holistically and like I said, it's, to me it's about quality of life and how do we get a better quality of life for the people
0: living here. Okay, well we're going to talk about a strategy that you're working on that mm. relates to that in a little bit. But, um, so in 2006 you became the department director. I did. Um, I didn't have any gray hair back then. <laughs> so let's talk about the mission of the department kind of as a whole and then we'll talk about sure. kind of the other so we've talked about environmental health mm-hmm. as you said you've got several other uh, divisions within within the department we'll, we'll talk about those but kind of what's the mission of the Manchester Health Department
1: yeah you know our, our, our mission is is really about um, improving the health of people making sure that um, we, we have this an environment, and I use that very broadly, that's, that's conducive to improving the health of the population. You know, Whether that's access to good health care, whether that's access to healthy foods, whether that's access to green space, whether that's getting inspectors out in the field, whether that's providing some limited care that we do provide direct services. Uh, it, it's really about how do we get all of these uh, strategies, tactics, functions,
0: on the same page to say, this is why we're here, and, and that's what we want to do. Okay, you're talking about a lot, and this is an interesting thing, as I said, we'll talk about this the strategy that you're working on, but you're talking about a lot of things that to me don't sound like health, in, a, mm-hmm. in the sense of like, you know, uh, get, getting shots or sure. something like that. Yeah. Um, so what resources do you have to try to bring about this, this holistic mm-hmm. change in the, in, the, in the city?
1: You know, we, um we, we certainly receive uh, the bulk of our, I shouldn't say the bulk of our funding, about a third of our funding comes from the city, comes from general okay. funds, so okay. the city's taxpayers help fund us. and okay. You know, we've, the, the Manchester Health Department was established in 1839, so we've been right. around a long time. long time. Hired its first health officer in 1885, so I think the public values the work that's done by the Manchester Health Department in, sure. in, in helping so you know we we are total operating budget is probably in the five to six million dollar range when we take everything into account so we um are very aggressive about going after outside funding okay. and i think because we've been able to do that we've been able to break away from a lot of the traditional public health roles so i think i think the taxpayers in manchester expect us to inspect restaurants expect us to do disease investigations but then we've been very creative in our funding going after some foundations to do things like safe routes to schools, healthy corner markets. Um, we actually get money in to help our highway department pave sidewalks so
0: kids can get to school safely. Okay. Put up crosswalks. Because yeah. um, in New Hampshire, having, <laughs> a, having a sidewalk is not a given. No, it is not. <laughs> and, and, you know,
1: not having... Uh, any type of broad-based tax in a sales tax or an income tax you know we are very careful with how we spend taxpayers' dollars in, in in the city that's what funds us but you know we've we've Gone after large uh, pots of money from Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, from the Endowment for Health, from uh, New Hampshire Charitable Foundation, from local funders. Granite United Way. We'll probably talk about that. Just made a million and a half dollar investment wow. Wow. in our neighborhood health improvement strategy. Okay. Um, so we're pretty aggressive, and I've got you know great folks who do this work day in and it's not me. It's you know it, it comes from the ground up. It's. Um, Great staff here who are who really believe in the mission and and go out and find
0: resources to expand what we're doing. That's great. Um, just quickly about governance. Who do, who do you? Who's your boss? Who do you report
1: so to? So I report directly to the mayor. Oh, okay. Um, so the city is governed by a, a mayor and board of aldermen. Uh, there are 14 aldermen and the mayor and. Um, I'm appointed by the mayor and confirmed by the Board of Aldermen. So okay. uh, that we there's no longer term limits. There used to be term limits and you would have to be reappointed every six years, but the the charter has changed and um, so now I'm appointed as long as
0: I Okay. Do a good job I guess. And <laughs> don't get okay. fired. Okay. <laughs> so yeah, so I report directly to the mayor. Okay. And there's a board of health in the city. There is. And what's the function of the Board of Health? So
1: the Board of Health is uh, really uh, serves in an advisory role. Uh, several years ago, the city charter was changed, which took sort of um, some of the powers away from boards and commissions. Some boards and commissions used to have the power to hire and fire and some fiduciary responsibilities. Now they're really just advisory. But our board is interesting because by city charter, it has to be comprised of a physician, a nurse, a dentist, a labor representative and a representative from the community. Okay. So at all times, we always have a nurse, a, um, a physician and a dentist on the board, which is, which is pretty unique because they, okay. uh, uh, they do provide great oversight. They do provide a lot of guidance for us. It's an opportunity for us to bounce ideas off of them. When we meet, we meet with them monthly. Our senior leadership team meets with the board monthly and sort of updates them on what's going on, and we get great feedback on on what we're doing, what they hear in the community,
0: okay. um, and that's very helpful for to us from a programming standpoint. Okay, let's talk about the other divisions in your in your department. Uh, one of the divisions is school health.
1: Yeah, what does what does school health do? So it's unique that in. Um, In in Manchester, the school nurses actually work for the health department. Okay. Um, That sounds unusual. It is unusual, and it it really started out um, years ago. Our community health nurses used to go into the schools to do the screenings. Height, weight, vision, scoliosis, if you remember, you know. Um, And and the needs of the students have changed dramatically to where now we have uh, a nurse in every school, and in our high schools we have two nurses. And it's not uncommon in a high school to see 80 kids a day uh, in our larger schools. So they're, they're very, very busy. That's a lot of patients. That's a lot and of, of patients. And, um, you know, a lot of it is, has changed, you know, it's not just the bumps and the bruises and the medication. There's some real, you know, bio needs of kids. You know, we see a lot yeah. of substance abuse, a lot of trauma, a lot of, um, mental health issues. So the needs of the kids have really changed through the years as well. But it is a unique model. Um, so we have about 32, 33 staff in the schools. Wow. Um, and they're, they're, you know, they're busy, everyone's busy. I hate to say people are busy, because everyone's busy, but sure. they, do, they do yeoman's work. And it's, you know, when you have a system of care, it's not unusual on a Monday morning for there to be a line of kids waiting for the school nurse, because they got sick over the weekend, don't have access to health care, can't afford an emergency room, um, and the you know the parent says well just see the nurse on Monday and we'll wow. go from there. So, so is this
0: is they they are actually pri- kind of primary care
1: they, access uh, by default I guess by default yeah I mean, it's, yeah okay you know they do spend for a lot of time a, for
0: a portion of the population yeah this is the best they can get for, uh, absolutely wow. yeah.
1: and the nurses spend a lot of time trying to link families up with you know primary care with home medical homes. Uh, We just did a great program where where we we hired, through our community health center, three community health workers, which will be, you know, in the schools working with families. Um, The social workers in schools are overwhelmed, the administration in schools is overwhelmed, so it's, you know, another set of hands to try and help our neediest schools get resources
0: for their families. Now, I would call this a matrix organization in the (laughs) sense that they work for you, they're they're employed by you, but they work for the school, in, in the school. Why why does that make sense? Why not have them be employed by (laughs) the school?
1: The mayor asked me the same question the other day. Uh, You know, there are pros and cons to having them here. Um, Sometimes I think they feel like they serve two masters and that they serve the school administration and then they serve us. I think when we look at them as an extension of public health in the schools, it makes sense for them to be aligned with the the health department. CDC has some great models around school health and school nursing. From a practical logistical standpoint, it probably makes more sense to have them employed by the school district. Um, the school district reimburses us for their time. So we have you know a $2.2 million charge back, if you will, to the school district. So from, from a bookkeeping and an administrative, it makes no sense to have them here. Okay. Um, but when we look at them as almost public health nurses in a school setting, right.
0: there is some, some synergy to have them here. Okay you also have a community health division which mm-hmm. you kind of mentioned earlier in particular with i think this was with respect to the refugee care that we were yep. talking about earlier can you talk about what what is the mission of the community health division
1: sure so the, i almost think of them as our clinical arm so okay. our, that division is primarily our, our community health nurses okay. who provide um you know we in public we always talk about public health versus health care so we don't provide health care per se with two exceptions one is around Uh, immunizations because our goal is to get as many people as many kids vaccinated so that we build herd immunity which lowers the chance of a vaccine preventable disease taking off in the community so that's one reason we we provide a a direct clinical service and and the other is around STD uh, and HIV work so we do run STD HIV clinics um, where people actually can come in and be diagnosed, be treated. And once again, we do that for a public health reason because we certainly don't want to see, you know, rates of gonorrhea and chlamydia and other things skyrocketing in the community. People are very reluctant, if you will, to go to their primary care doc if they have okay. a, uh, an STD. Okay. Um, so we, we are able to get people not only uh, in here and treated, but we'll do contact investigations, find partners, um, to make sure that they're also, appro- you know, appropriately treated. We don't. We have a very low incidence of um, HIV in, oh. in the state, okay. in the city. We might get a couple cases a year, handful of cases a year of newly diagnosed HIV. Why um, is that? You, um, you know, New Hampshire is a relatively low incidence state all across when it comes to that. I, it, it's interesting, though, because I think with the advent of sort of the HIV you know, drug cocktail, if you will, you, you know, we spend a lot of time doing prevention, but there was sort of this mindset that, well, these drugs will take care of me if I do acquire HIV or AIDS, so I'm going to re-engage in these risky behaviors. Huh. Um, okay. But we still haven't seen it. You know, what we are seeing right now is it, not only in the city, but across the state, is a is a tremendous problem with heroin.
0: Okay, I've and, heard
1: this. And I'm I'm concerned. You know, with is this the, something
0: you all you are addressing as the we're trying, directing? we're okay. trying, it's such a It's such. And would a big you do it problem. through your community health division or, so, or another part
1: of it? Um, we it would certainly through our community health division. They're doing a lot of prevention, education, outreach work um, with IV drug users. Okay. You know, my, my fear is that with the increase in heroin use, we're going to begin to see more Hepatitis B, Hepatitis C and HIV because of the sharing of needles and and other things we know we don't do We don't do needle exchange in in, in the city. It's always been a very controversial issue as you can imagine Um, So yeah, I'm certainly concerned that we're going to begin to see more HIV and more Hep B and C with the, the increase in drug
0: use. Okay Who's, who's entitled to services from the community health division? You were saying some people would rather go there. They're embarrassed. They don't want to yep. tell their primary care provider, I think I have an STD. Right. Um,
1: but who's entitled to, to come to your clinic? Anyone. 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 Our doors okay. are open uh, for both immunization, HIV, STD. Um, okay. It's interesting when we, we actually survey people why they come here for immunizations because immunizations, you know, you can typically get at your provider's office. Um, right. and a lot of it is, you know, I can't really afford the copay because we don't charge anything.
0: You don't charge at all for, we don't charge for, at all for, for immunizations. All.
1: Correct. In New Hampshire the vaccine is paid for by the insurance companies uh-huh. and we've chosen through the years not to charge an administration fee. Okay. So, okay. People come in and get them for free. Okay. Um so you know, copays convenience, you know, we run clinics evening, one evening as well as during the day, so you know, someone gets their exclusion notice from school because they're, you know, not up to date they can get in here pretty quickly. You know, they might have to wait in the office, but
0: versus waiting for an appointment
1: at their primary care doc. Okay.
0: Other, have we missed a division?
1: So yeah, our other division is our um, Division of Chronic Disease Prevention and Neighborhood Health. And that's really the newest division, if you will. But when you look at uh, the work that needs to be done in public health, you know, it's not, um, it's not infectious disease that kills us anymore. Right. It's our own lifestyles, it's chronic diseases, it's cancer, it's heart disease, and it's all, you know, based on our personal risk factors more than anything. So, right. Do we have people that die of influenza and other communicable diseases? Yes, but when you look at what really kills us, yeah. it's heart disease, it's cancer, it's, it's um, things that are related to diet, that are related to smoking, that are related to lack of exercise, so we've really put a, a, a big push over the past five years into expanding this division of, of chronic disease prevention in, in
0: neighborhood health. Okay, so that leads me to the next topic, which was, we, I had referenced earlier that you've been working on a, a fairly large strategy you uh, called Neighborhood Health Improvement Strategy. And it came about uh, last year after the National Public Health Week in 2014, you announced this, this new uh, Neighborhood Health Improvement Strategy. so. Let's talk about that. What is the neighborhood health improvement strategy? It's really a, it's it's. Let me just step back and say, sort of how we developed it was okay.
1: convening a lot of the stakeholders in the okay. community around the issues that we were seeing. And the neighborhood health improvement strategy is just that. It's a strategy to say, if we're going to tackle health problems in the city, how are we going to do it? And the decision was made. A very conscious decision was made that we've got to get down to the neighborhood level. Okay. Um, and if we're going to get down to the neighborhood level we want to work in the most deprived neighborhoods in the city the ones that have the highest and you know, when you look at the strategy no matter what map you look at no matter what the indicator is that we're talking about the map always looks the same okay we of are the, the same areas uh, of highest need in the city and that's where we want to begin to focus our our efforts and it's it's an interesting strategy in that you know there are things you don't really think about you know we talk about the social determinants of health well If we're going to improve health we've got to make sure people are educated we've got to make sure people are employed we've got to make sure people have access to care we have to make sure that people have a safe place to live and a safe place to play and the ability to get outside so we're looking at the strategy very holistically if you will it's not only about access to care as important as that is it's about getting into the neighborhoods of greatest need and making substantial changes to improve the lives of the people who are living there. And that's what the strategy is trying to do.
0: Okay. And as, as we talked about earlier, what you just listed off, uh, maybe the five or six things you just listed off, only one sounded like health Right. Right. Everything else was kind of looking at the broader environment, looking yeah. at, I mean, even uh, looking at some of the priority recommendations mm-hmm. included things like um, supporting economic Self sufficiency, which right. to me doesn't sound like healthcare, um, or or but but it is a part of Absolutely. public health. Absolutely,
1: saying. you know, when we we look and we've really tried to focus in um, using a community schools model. So we received some funding a couple of years ago from Robert Wood Johnson Foundation to transform three of our elementary schools into community schools. And what we mean by that is, how do we use this structure, the school building, mm-hmm. for other purposes other than educating kids? How do we how do we use it to
0: engage neighbors and residents to use the facility for different purposes oh, okay. um, so this this it's used during the day for the kids but at night it's it's otherwise empty correct. So, so how do we how do we you begin have this to asset put some nice. programming
1: in there okay. um, and give you an example we've been doing resident leadership training at okay. one of the schools okay um, and once again it's about getting people engaged in, in their community yeah. and we you know we know that some of the strategies you really don't think of as public health, but we know if we can get people employed right the health outcomes are but their long term health outcomes are right. better. Right. We know, you know, if we can get people educated, their long term health outcomes are better. So it's looking at it very differently. We have a you know, we've got a, a, an issue with truancy in, okay. in the city and it's it's not the high school kids skipping class, it's elementary school kids who aren't making it to school. And that's a family dynamic. That's not you know, someone just deciding they're going to cut class and go to the beach today. Um, so we're beginning to say, how do we give families the skill set that they need to get these kids to school?
0: Um, and that's a public health. So it's kind of a, a, a and, and the reason we want them to get to school is because we know if they get educated, they'll be healthier. Exactly. So it, it, it reaches into your public health kind of very Absolutely. indirectly, but, right. it, but it has a real effect and on it health. It has a real effect on health.
1: And we also know that things like school are a protective factor for kids uh, when they're exposed to. So, you know, when you're exposed to things like domestic violence at home, or um, not knowing where your next meal is gonna come from, or the the toxic stress of, of your neighborhood because there's violence and garbage, and you know, all these other things that when we can actually get a kid in school, they become healthier because this protective factor of being out of that environment and in a safe and nurturing environment.
0: Okay, if, if, if for no more than eight hours, nine Correct. hours a day, yeah. at least it's a, it's a reprieve, Right. an oasis maybe.
1: Yeah, and it's interesting because okay. we see a lot of our kids, um, sort of the, the, the route, they'll go to school, then they might end up at the MPAL, the Police Athletic League, and then Salvation Army, Kids Cafe for dinner. You, you know, there's almost a circuit that you can see a lot of our kids do every day to make sure that they can get that dinner you know, uh-huh. before before heading home or help with homework before heading home.
0: And what's your role uh, and your department's, not you personally necessarily, but your department's role in kind of knitting together mm. that that what you're just describing? You know, I think our role is, um, is going to
1: be the implementation of the strategy. Okay. I think our role is going to be helping to secure funding from non-traditional resources. Um, so I, I mentioned earlier our, the Granite United Way just made a, a three-year, one-and-a-half-million-dollar commitment to people who will implement the, stra- the, the strategies identified in the plan. Okay. So it's not the million-and-a-half is coming to the health department. It's fu- what's your piece of the, the plan that you can carry out, um, and we'll give you money to do it because they realize the value of the, the uh, identified needs and, and the strategies that we want to employ. We try and use evidence-based practices whenever we can. Um, and, and I thank the United Way and I think others who have, who have stepped up to the plate um, to say, yeah, we believe in this and we're gonna put some money behind
0: it. Okay, so let's talk about a couple of the, of the recommendations. One you mentioned already, which is resident leadership training opportunities. What, what, is, what are resident leaders? What's the vision there?
1: Yeah, well, the vision is um, having folks who want to see their neighborhoods change. You know, we've done a lot of work with neighborhood watch groups, believe it or not. And, and, you know, our neighborhood watch groups aren't about patrolling neighborhoods looking for crime. Yeah, there's there's certainly a deterrent there, but these are folks who get together who say, how do I make my neighborhood a better place? And, you know, a lot of times these are homegrown folks that, you know, may have never had an opportunity to attend any type of a formal leadership training. Um, so we're trying to, once again, give people additional skill sets who are, who are already vested in their community to, to help make their community a better place.
0: Okay. Another one you have is Create and Coordinate Sustainable Healthy home System. Yeah. What, what's that strategy? So healthy homes is an interesting concept. So we do a lot of home
1: visiting okay. uh, um, for things like childhood asthma, childhood lead poisoning prevention, maybe checking on living conditions, some code compliance issues. And we've always, if we went in for one reason, we went in for one reason. Now we're beginning to say, well, let's take a more holistic look at the home as an environment. Okay, maybe we're here because your child has uncontrolled asthma, but what are some of the triggers we want to be looking for? What are some of the other issues? a lot of home visiting occurs by different agencies. So, are we better coordinating with VNA, with um, Project Launch, with some of our other partners to say, "All right, if we're in a home, how do we get the biggest bang for our buck when we're in there?" And, and right. looking at the home, like I said, as a, as a much larger place than and reason why we're there for just that one visit. That's sort of our strategy. So we combine our environmental health folks with our clinical folks to say, you know, maybe the kid has uncontrolled asthma, but it's because of the leak in the roof, you know, causing the dampness. So uh-huh. it's not only the clinical side, it's it's the other piece. So we're l- really trying to look at where people live uh, in a much different way. Okay.
0: You also have a, a, a mention about um, strengthening the focus on behavioral and mental health by lo- co-locating providers in elementary school environment.
1: Yeah. You know, I have the opportunity, I've had the opportunity for the past six years to sit on the board of the uh, Mental Health Center of Greater Manchester, and the one thing we see is the number of patients continues to grow. You know, the Mental Health Center in Manchester sees over 11,000 patients now, and I think it was 9,000 when I started on the board. When we reached out to our community schools and we said to the principal, if you could have one thing to make your school better, what would it be? And and the principal at Beach Street School said, "I I need mental health folks in here. Really? you know when you have kids that um, can't learn because they have so many other things going on and they're acting out and being disruptive um, so that other kids can't learn and the social worker just doesn't have the bandwidth to deal with all of this uh, we began to co-locate a, a mental health provider from the mental health system in the school okay. um, you know we use some grant money to get it up and running and then you know the, the goal is to make it sustainable by billing Medicaid or whatever the insurer is. Okay. Um, and it's it's amazing. The needs of, of kids are just very, very different than they were years ago. And um, to begin to better integrate mental health in the school system, we think we're going to have a healthier population who are able to
0: attend school. Great. So how? So we've, we've talked a little bit about some of, of the priorities. How are you coming on them? How, how is the strategy going? It's 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 going. You
1: know, certainly the investment from the United Way is is going to be key to getting it off the ground. Um, okay. The the city is very vested. Our leadership team is very vested. Um, we've we've looked at our leadership team at the highest level. It involves you know the mayor, the superintendent, the police chief, chief medical officers at the hospitals. Um, you know, one of the I, uh, one of the criticisms is we've got to do a better job engaging residents and neighbors in the implementation of it. So it can't be a top-down approach. Right. It really has to be a bottom-up approach. We, we, we've we looked at the data. We do community needs assessments. we we come up with, and really this what this neighborhood health improvement strategy is, it's what other folks call a community health improvement plan. So it's how are we going to do it? We're looking at it very differently than saying we're going to reduce
0: heart disease in the community by x, y, or z. Um, you definitely aren't taking a single disease focus, which no. is a criticism, I think, of other public health efforts like that. Right. Right. It's yeah. really um, it's it's much it's much more broad
1: mm-hmm. than that. You know, we we hope if we can make these bigger infrastructure and systems changes, that it doesn't matter what the disease is that we're talking about, we're gonna have a positive
0: impact. Great. Um I noticed you are a fellow of Nacho. Is that? <laughs> uh, NACHO, yes. NACHO, all right. Yes. Not Nacho. Uh, the National Association of County and City Health Officials. So, what is NACHO and uh, what does it do? So I'm, so, I'm, I've been living in Texas. So that's okay. Not, not um,
1: sure. So, <laughs> NACHO is um, really our national organization. And it stands for the National Association of, of County and City Health Officials. Mm-hmm. So, it's almost our national organization, like APHA would be for okay. public health, NACHO is for local health departments. Um, I had the opportunity a few years back uh, to go through a leadership program that they put together. It was a year-long leadership program. It was the first time I ever went to San Antonio, actually. Um, And they they picked 30 uh, local health officers from around the country and the requirement was you couldn't have been in your current position more than two years and it was called Survive and Thrive and it was about how to survive the challenges of being a local health official and what to expect and, and really how to thrive and have a, have a long-term career in, in local public health. And it's a great organization. They, they you know certainly provide a lot of um, updates on what's going on at the national level to us, uh, and vice versa. There's a great opportunity for folks to sit on their different committees, boards, um, so that they get the input from, from locals as well. So it's a great organization. You, know, you can find them at NHO.org and uh, visit their website frequently
0: to keep up with what's going on. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about the direct care system. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what I'm curious about is how well integrated uh, is public health generally, in your opinion, uh, with the direct care system, and uh, maybe in Manchester specifically, but yep. also kind of in your, your sense in general. We can talk in general. Sure. And then kind of how could that relationship be made stronger?
1: You know, I think, uh, I think in Manchester, we're very fortunate that we have a very close relationship with our health care delivery system. So when you look at health care delivery in the city, you've got two acute care hospitals. You've got Dartmouth-Hitchcock, which is the largest outpatient clinic in the area. We have a federally qualified community health center, um, federally uh, federally qualified um, health care for the homeless project, which is actually f- funded through us, and then we contract out. We've done a lot of work with the system around access to care in, in the city. For years, our community health center was unable to keep up with the pace of need in the city. and you know, you always see inappropriate emergency use, care, uh, use of emergency rooms, no matter where you are in the country. And some of it is around lack of access to primary care. So a great effort was put in over many years to say, how do we improve access to care, to primary care in the city? So the hospitals have been integral parts, you know, I, I joke about my hair turning gray. That was certainly one of the projects that probably added a few, Um, But we've been able to see our community health center expand, number one. uh, Open satellite offices, Uh, they just merged with another entity called Child Health Services which is becoming the pediatric wing of the community health center. Uh, So you know when you're an FQHC you've got this enhanced reimbursement um, so it makes sense to expand, to get with, with Medicaid expansion, with the exchange, with Obamacare. Know, more people are being insured and, and if we can get these people linked up with a, a community health center as an example it becomes a much more financially uh, stable and sustainable model and, and I think a lot of the work we did with our health care system was around access to care
0: okay.
1: you know we meet with them regularly our, our different divisions meet with them so I, I think every division I met has a different link in with our healthcare care delivery system okay. certainly our environmental health and emergency preparedness folks work with them all of the time. Um, Our oral health program, which I I didn't mention, we actually have a a school-based oral health program here, partners with one of the hospitals who has a dental clinic. Um, Our community health staff is in regular contact with the infection control folks at the hospitals around what's going on uh, with specific cases. And our chronic disease prevention and neighborhood health folks are really working with the, the healthcare delivery system around what environmental changes do we need to make to keep people healthier there's this concept of community benefits that hospitals have to, um, have to meet. And, and we look at community benefits more than writing off uncompensated care. It's about what are you gonna do in the community to, to help us achieve our mission. And, and I think both CMC, Elliott, uh, and our other you know, healthcare partners have, have stepped up to the plate over time with that.
0: Great. You've been with the department for 25 years. 25 years. Um, how's it changed? Has mission changed? Is, there, is it an emphasis on particular activities? I mean, how does it look different than it did when you first got here in 19? Um, well, in we all have months. computers now, which was uh-huh. you
1: know, <laughs> something when I yeah. started, we had I one and a, in a <laughs> dot matrix printer. Um, y- you know, I don't think the mission has changed. I, I think people are, are very true to the mission. Um, I, I think how we carry out that mission has changed. I think technology has been a, a huge benefit for us. I remember when we had, we, we had our first internet connection and you had to sign up to use the one computer that had the Internet. Uh, and now, you know, you sit with four devices in front of you to be able to get yeah. access and to all instant information. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, on one hand, I'm, I'm, I'm sad to see that people don't have research skills like, you know, we do. Um, people don't know what a card catalog is <laughs> coming up through the... The ranks now, but by the same token, as we have such much better access to resources and information that makes us do our job better. You know, we always say it's not like the fire department that can buy a bigger fire truck. I need smart people, I, I need people who, you know, understand what they're doing to make uh, a good employee. So. Right. We've grown through the years. We've, we've. I think we've changed our focus through the years to meet the needs of the community, and I, I think we're gonna continue to do so. Yeah, you know, As I said, we, we're really making that transition now into
0: chronic disease prevention, okay. which is where that we was, have to my go. My next question to you is, looking into the, your crystal ball, yeah, what's the future look like it, for public health it, it, in, in Manchester, public health in general? Yeah, I think uh,
1: in Manchester, certainly, we've gotta look at the social determinants of health. We've gotta get our arms around uh, poverty, around education, around income um, to, to if we're going to have long-term impacts. From the department standpoint, we're always going to carry out the tasks, if you will, that we we, we need to do. But I think how we, how we tackle them, how we fund them, how we um, utilize our resources are going to change in the future. And I, a lot of it is going to be driven by the Neighborhood Health Improvement Strategy.
0: Okay. How has your leadership of the department been shaped by your experience here for, for you know, having been here and, and having grown up in Manchester, yeah. and having been in the, the department for as long as you have.
1: Um, you know, I look,
0: I, there's a couple things. I, I
1: think I like to hire folks with a very strong work ethic. Okay, I don't want to micromanage people. I don't micromanage people. I don't want to babysit people. I want people to be committed to the cause, have a strong work ethic, and day in and day out do what's right. Um, you know, I, I try and... I, I do less public health and I do more administrative work by default. Mm-hmm. So I try and shield my employees, the folks who I get to work with, from some of the nonsense that goes on around budgeting and politics because and, that's a lot of what we have to deal with. Sure. Um, and I want folks to be able to be you know, isolated from that and, and let me handle that and you folks handle what you're committed to and what you're doing. Um, so I think that's one of the things that has its pros and cons through the years is like you know I, I still remain very active in in public health i don't want to sound like i just push a pencil around all day but i think giving people the ability to go out and do their jobs and you know be shielded from some of the other work that goes on it makes us a stronger department
0: okay did you have a mentor coming up through the, through the program did you have or mentors perhaps yeah. and, and
1: you know i had the opportunity
0: you... to really work for some great
1: folks coming into the department, you know Fred Russick, who was the previous public health director. Uh, I certainly learned a lot, you know, from him, and by watching him. Rich DePantima, who was the deputy director at the time, as I was sort of coming up, um, just two brilliant guys, public health wise. Um, and you learn, you know, you watch, and I, I like to kind of watch and learn, and not um, not necessarily follow someone's style, but mm-hmm learn from their style and develop my own style based on what I think works. So, you know, Fred and Rich were were great to work for through all these years and um, you know, you learn a lot about the how to handle the the different aspects of, of the job from you know, dealing with a board of mayor and aldermen, to CEOs of hospitals to neighborhood residents, and yeah. I think that's one of the beauties of this job is you get to do that. It's quite a diversity of it's a great diversity. And of that's one, of the, right. one of the things I love about this. Is you know, people say, "What's a typical day look like?" I couldn't tell you. Cause there's really <laughs> no such thing. Okay. You know, I because um, it will literally be you know, being out in the community and talking to all segments of society. Because that's if we're going to improve. The health of the people of Manchester. It's going to take a, an across-the-board
0: group to do it. Kind of wrapping up. Uh, what advice would you give to a young person who's thinking about a public health uh, public health as a career field?
1: I would strongly encourage them to continue their studies in it. I think um, understand what you're passionate about. I think one of the beauties of getting into public health is you've got a tremendous number of opportunities. Understand what you're passionate about. You know. Okay. Um, if you're passionate about environmental health, take that track. You know, if you're passionate about working with people in a non-clinical setting, take that path. So, um, the uh, whether it's undergraduate or a graduate degree in public health is going to open up a
0: lot of doors for you. But but follow your passion. Okay. And what kind of specific preparation would make you ready to be to come in and be an entry-level person in in the Manchester Public Health Department?
1: Yeah. Um, it's. It, to me, it's about having the right attitude more than anything. Okay. So, um, you know, as I said, we want folks when they when they come in to be passionate, to be able to um, interact with others. Um, you know, sometimes I'll go talk to groups of graduating students, and I'll you know my advice is I I don't want to hear the word. Like or amazing, every other word that comes out of your mouth. So, <laughs> one thing is amazing. Not everything is amazing. <laughs> and using the word like, like drives me crazy. But uh-huh. uh, you know, I want people who can interact with others on, on a professional basis um, that can handle diversity because the challenges of of working in public health change every day. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, being able to go with the flow at times is is critical. So, I want someone with a
0: sound education. I want someone with good interpersonal skills. Okay, great. Well. Any parting thoughts? We we'll wrap up here. Any thoughts for this?
1: Um, you know, I would. I would. I, I've
0: been very fortunate yeah. to have a career in public health. Yeah. I've been very
1: fortunate to spend twenty-five years here at the health department. And you know, I think anytime you, you come into an organization, if you if you leave the organization a little bit better than than you found it, then that's a success. And I think when people move on, and we've had great people move on to to other jobs and uh, other careers and. Uh, You know, I say if if someone has learned here and has has been able to move on and make an impact somewhere else, that's okay. We've done our job, and uh, I I think we're always ready to meet the challenges that that lie ahead, and uh,
0: looking forward to doing it for a few more years. Awesome. Thank you so much for for, uh, giving me the interview today. I've enjoyed talking with you about it. My pleasure. Thank you. Hopefully we'll be able to follow up at some point and hear more about your your strategy and how it's going. Yes, we would be glad to do that because I think we're going to see some real successes. You've been listening to the Health Leader Forge, a production of the College of Health and Human Services at the University of New Hampshire. Please go to our website, healthleaderforge.org, for more information or to leave comments about today's podcast. Look for Health Leader Forge podcasts on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and other podcast distribution sites. Thanks for being a part of the Health Leader Forge community, and we'll see you again in about two weeks.